Hey everyone, and welcome to the Generations United Church podcast, a podcast for Gen U by Gen U, where we discuss the Bible, church, culture, and all things relevant to a life following Jesus. My name is Luke Williams, and I'm the pastor of Gen U's online ministries and young adults. If you are new to Gen U, head on over to our website, genuchurch.com, and find out about our services, events, and community life. Today, we are continuing to share our conversations from our Wednesday night series, Beyond the Page, where Pastor Tommy Brown interviews different authors. This conversation is with pastor and author Chase Replicle. Chase wrote a book called The Five Masculine Instincts. So Chase's hope for men is that you'll discover your own instincts are neither curse nor virtue. They are the experiences by which you develop a new and better instinct, an instinct of faith. By exploring sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy, the five masculine instincts shows you how to better understand yourself and how your own instincts can be matured into something better. This is the path by which we become better men. Chase Replicle is a pastor at Ben Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. He holds a degree in Biblical Studies and an MA in New Testament from the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. He is currently a D-Men student in the Sacred Art of Writing at Western Theological Seminary. Chase's work draws from history, psychology, literature, and a rich narrative approach to Scripture to help readers think more deeply about faith and life. He has written for Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, Ecstasis, Bible Engagement Project, and Influence Magazine. In addition, he hosts the Pastor Writer Podcast, where he interviews Christian authors on writing and publishing. This is a great interview, and I hope you will enjoy it. And uh, I'm here with Chase Replogle. Chase is the author of The Five Masculine Instincts, uh, a new book that Moody Publishers have just uh, come out with. If you're not familiar with Moody, uh, they published authors such as Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages, and uh, a host of other quality authors. And Chase has joined that stable of writers um, there and uh, has, has become... Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I can't say we're at like best friends level, but I would put him in the friend category. And I think if we were able to actually get to see each other in person, we have so many shared interests, uh, he would quickly move into the inner circle. But I found him to be thoughtful, um, very smart, but also very uh, down to earth. And so Chase is currently working on a doctor of ministry at Western uh, Theological Seminary and uh, the doctorate is in sacred writing. So what a cool thing to get a doctorate degree in. And I think that the conversation is going to be beneficial for all of us tonight. Uh, Not just men, if you know a man, I think that this conversation will be really interesting uh, to you as well. So Chase, uh, welcome tonight. You're talking, we're in Niceville, Florida. Where in the world are you and, and what do you do up in that neck of the woods? Yeah, well, great. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to be with you. My uh, my kids and I were just doing lots of Star Wars jokes before I came in here. So they're going to be most disappointed they didn't uh, have a party like you guys sounded like you had. But uh, I, I'm a pastor in uh, Ozark, Missouri, and uh, I have some Florida connections. My in-laws live down in Naples, so we get down to Florida quite a bit and love to spend time down there on the water. But most of the time we're here in the Ozarks and enjoy all sorts of stuff outdoors and uh, have a couple horses and some animals running around. I've got a couple kids, so we stay pretty busy with all that work. So you have a farm is basically what you're saying. Well, I have a family who actually farm, so I hesitate to say that. We have a key hobby farm, so very much the hobby side of the farm. But uh, yeah, we've got some chickens and horses and some dogs and a cat, so all sorts of stuff to feed, basically. 
I understand that. So when you're into sailing, I, I follow along on Instagram and everything. How'd you get into that? Yeah, we, so I've not been sailing my whole life. That's something we grew up uh, on lakes around here. We've got some great lakes for fishing and a lot of power boating. But uh, my wife and I were looking for something a few years back that we enjoyed doing together. Uh, I like to bird hunt and she's not super into that. So we were trying to find a hobby that we would enjoy. And uh, we started doing some certification courses. There's a great local lake near us that actually has rental boats. So we rented for a long time. I've done some certifications down in Florida for coastal sailing. And uh, we finally at the pandemic bought an old uh, 1984 25 foot Catalina that I parked in the backyard and worked on all through lockdowns and re-rigged and painted and, and finally got it in the water. And so we're, we're anxious. It's finally that season here where it's getting warm enough for us to spend some weekends out sailing. So it can't come, can't come soon enough. Cool. And you're at home right now. What a cool office that you have there. I have office. Yeah, thanks. I'm looking I'm, at I'm, I'm in my study. That's right. That's, oh, pastors have studies, not offices. I forgot. Either one. That. I do a little bit of work and a little bit of studying. So it's probably both. Okay. So you, you have been a writer for a long time and you've been interested in writing for a long time, but now you've written a book that, as I said, has been published by Moody. And I love the cover of this. If you haven't seen it, uh, this is the only copy that I have and you can't have it because he personalized it to me, but you can get it on Amazon. Um, but now you've, you've published with Moody. What was that like getting, it, it seems like it was, uh, sort of a dream come true as it has been uh, for, for many of us who've had the privilege of, of publishing. What was that like for you? Yeah, well, you you absolutely would know well. Publishing's a, a really long journey. So that book represents, I actually went back the other day, somebody was asking me how long I'd been working on it. And I went back and found my original notes uh, just in my app and my phone where I had started kind of outlining some thoughts for what would become the book. And that's been right at six years ago. So the book represents sort of six years of thinking and writing and the, the hustle, the kind of grind of trying to find an agent and a publisher. And uh, man, there were so many moments where God's favor was on that and, and grateful for it. And and books really represent a team. You know, there's there's editors and copywriters and marketers and uh, first readers who give feedback. So while it certainly has my name on the cover, there's really a, a whole group of people that have contributed. And so I'm just so grateful for it and grateful for people who take the time to read it. It's a subject that I care a lot about and I think matters right now. And I don't take that lightly with busy schedules. Uh, we probably don't read as many books as we intend to read. So when people do, I, I deeply appreciate yeah. it. You said it's a subject that matters right now. And the, the, the title of it alone is enough to split a room. The moment you put the word masculine in anything in culture today. Now, granted, we're, I won't say it is as divisive in this neck of the woods. I've used that euphemism, colloquialism twice already, but it, that, that term isn't. But you, you hear terms like toxic masculinity and those sorts of things. Um, it's not as easy uh, in in some circles to be able to use that word without going. Eh, that's that's uh, that needs unpacking. Um, have you received a lot of pushback just on on the topic of masculinity in general? People judging a book by its cover, so to say. Yeah, you know, I, I'm fully aware that putting the word masculinity in a title, putting it on the cover, kind of makes it controversial, sadly, regardless of what's actually in the book. And I think that's representative of our conversation right now. If you even try to bring up a conversation about what is masculinity, what is manhood, what does it mean to be a Christian man, it feels like you're navigating into something full of landmines, something that's going to be dangerous and controversial. And so what tends to happen is we tend to just not talk about it. We tend to shy away from those things, particularly if we're trying to be 
be polite and understanding. We just leave those things where we don't talk about politics, religion or manhood. Those are the, the three things now. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely been questions around it. I think, you know, people wonder kind of which side are you on? What position do you take? We usually are trying to figure out, you know, where people fit in the existing debate. And a big part of what I wanted to do with the book was try to push through some of that. I wanted to try to give language for men and women to have more meaningful conversations around manhood and also to try to find a way through the controversy and do something that actually just helps men become better, that gives us a path for how we can become more like Christ and cultivate better character, which has never been more important than I think it is right now. That's really, that's a thoughtful way to put it. And you, you, you said you're trying to navigate your way through it. What, what is the it? What are the polarities that you're seeing out there surrounding the topic of manhood, masculinity? You know, it's a, it's a gendered issue. What are the, the camps, so to speak, that you're seeing? Sure. So I tend to frame it, although it's probably more complex than that. I experience out in the world, there's really these two positions. There's the one position that calls traditional forms of masculinity toxic. So this is the phrase we've been hearing over the last few years. It associates things like aggression and stoicism and competitiveness with traditionally masculine traits that on on a whole are harmful for men, according to those who see it as toxic. And uh, there's a group who thinks we should deconstruct those ideas of masculinity and build new images of masculinity for this age. There's been a kind of opposite reaction to that in which people have said, no, 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 instead of questioning or deconstructing masculinity, you need to embrace those masculine instincts, that raw masculinity with abandon, you know, don't question it, indulge it, kind of lean into those masculine traits. I think most men, particularly Christian men, feel sort of caught knowing both of those aren't entirely right. And I use the word in the first chapter of the book, malaise, which is this sense that something's not right, something's off, something's broken, but we can't quite put our finger on it. We're not exactly sure how to fix it. And this is where I see a lot of men stuck right now is we know it's controversial, so we're talking about it less. And we know that something about the way it's been framed in culture isn't right, but we're not quite sure how to move forward. And so a lot of men, I think, just feel stuck. They feel a little burnt out, and I think they feel a little disengaged from it altogether. So how many children do you have? I've got two. Two. And the genders of those children? Yep. So I've got my oldest is a son, and then I've got a daughter as well. So you're, you're raising a son in this climate to where in some places he's probably being told certain things about what it means to be a man. And then in other places he might encounter other messages. And so I could imagine that even beyond the pulpit, you know, you're in an Assemblies of God church uh, where you are, even, it, that is correct, right? I do have that part yep, right. Yep, that's right. Yep. Yep. So you're in an Assemblies of God church where you are, probably more traditional theological environment up there, but you're not naive to uh, the messages that, that, are, that are out there in culture today. So I can imagine that, that it's a personal issue for you raising a son, and then it's also a pastoral issue uh, for you. I'm, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind just framing for us um, how, you, how you really came to think about what you've come to call the five masculine instincts. What are they? How do they help us um, give language to this topic of masculinity so that we can become more thoughtful, uh, better men in Christ? Sure. So uh, as a pastor, but I think any thoughtful Christian, if you pay attention to your life and the lives of your children or the people around you, you start to notice that people may may sin the same sin, but do it out of very different motivations or reasons. So two people can both lie, for instance, but be motivated to lie for totally different reasons. Their, their instinct, their impulse is different. 
So as a pastor, you're always looking to push those conversations a level deeper than just sometimes we frame conversations with men around uh, the, the, the sins that are common to men, money, sex, and power is sometimes how it's framed. You're looking to try to push that conversation and say, well, why those particular sins and what's really going on in your life? So as I was doing that with men and recognizing that men are not one monolithic thing, we're not motivated by the same things, we're not made up the same way, our instincts aren't the same, you see that also in the Bible, that these men sometimes uh, fail in the same ways, sometimes have destructive experiences in the same ways, but do it out of different motivations. And I came across a, a monologue in one of Shakespeare's plays. Actually, the opening lines will be familiar, even if you're not, a, and I'm certainly no Shakespeare expert, but there's a famous monologue that opens all the world's a stage, and each of us men and women mere players on it with our entrances and our exits. And Shakespeare goes on to describe five stages in a man's life, plus birth and death. So the middle ones are these five. And I recognized really quickly what he was getting at were these instincts by which we live. He uses images, but they're capturing Shakespeare being a kind of psychological writer. This is human nature. These are the ways as men we tend to act or perform or the parts, the roles that we begin to play. And really quickly, I saw Shakespeare's roles in my own life. I saw them in the men in my congregation. And pretty quickly, I started connecting them with men in the Bible. So what I did in the book was just give each of those Shakespearean images a single word, an instinct name to try to help describe them, and then paired them with a biblical character to see them at work. Uh, so real quick, I'm, we can dive into whichever ones or all of them. But those five instincts based on Shakespeare's are sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation and apathy. Sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. So are these like sequential stages that a man will go through the, as a man matures? Is it like chronological? Can I be in more than one of them at once, go back and forth? How, how do we think about that? Yeah, it's probably good to, to talk about how I define an instinct, because that's what I'm calling these. Shakespeare certainly lines these up as uh, an image of a boy growing into a man. So the first one is that I call sarcasm. He paints as a reluctant schoolboy who's sort of dragging himself to class in the morning. The last one that I call apathy, he has as a kind of retirement figure. It's an older man in his slippers around the house. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily, I think Shakespeare's using that as a mental image, but I don't think of these instincts as having to fall into certain life stages. Uh, certainly a moment of great ambition in your life in which you fail can lead to a kind of apathy. You can jump these. I don't think they're sequential. I should also say, I don't think that these instincts are expectations of men. It's not as if you have to have one or all of these instincts to qualify as a man. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that these are the five five sins of men, that these are the things you've got to be watching out for. I mean, certainly ambition and reputation and adventure aren't sins. In many cases, they're, they're good things. I think of an instinct by using a definition that C.S. Lewis writes about. He defines an instinct as behavior as if from knowledge. So in other words, we act and behave as if we've decided to do it, when oftentimes we haven't actually thought about it. We're acting out of a kind of impulse and instinct. So what I do with these five instincts is say, there are these five ways of acting, of perceiving the world in yourself, that if you're not careful, you will indulge and lean into without ever considering them or questioning them or checking them. And when you overindulge these instincts in your life, a good thing like ambition can actually become a destructive thing. A good thing like reputation can actually cause you to cover things up and sin. 
so these instincts are things as men, I think you should be on the lookout for. You should be paying attention to. You should learn to recognize them and check them so that you don't overindulge them and learn, which is really a conversation about character, how to mature these into something better, how to make sure there's a better instinct of faith at work within your life that keeps these other instincts in their proper place. Hmm. So I, I just want to go nice and slow here to make sure make sure that we get it. Is so ambition can go either way, right? Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? Ambition can be noble or ambition can lean too far and I can be ambitious in a, in a sinful sense. Is that right? Yeah, I think all of these are good things. So that if they apathy. become the... Yeah, so certainly think of apathy as there's a time and a season for everything. There's a season where we withdraw. Um, sometimes pastors will practice a sabbatical. Sometimes we just need a vacation to, to step out of the stress and the complexity of life. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes the controlling disposition of your life, if you find yourself constantly withdrawing and retreating and being apathetic, then there's probably something that can be good that you've begun to overindulge, that's become an unchecked instinct in your life that can very much lead to destruction. So ambition is another good example. Um, I would never say, let's, let's create a generation of ambitionless men, right? That's not what we're aiming for. But at the same time, your ambition can become so desperate and so controlling and so consuming that it can lead you into missing what God is doing, outpacing what God is doing, beginning to judge people around you and use people. That good thing out of proportion can actually be destructive. And part of why I think this conversation is so important is the way of talking about this is not something that we often we often get. We tend to think my job as a Christian is to control sin. Uh, if I can do that, then I, I've done my job. But to really do that, to to grow in holiness, we've got to dig deeper into our life and understand, well, what are these instincts that I'm acting out of that need to be checked? And I get that from the the Apostle Paul writes to the young man, Timothy, uh, his first letter to Timothy. Timothy's in a really difficult position. He's pastoring in Ephesus. It's full of division and conflict. A lot of that conflicts across genders, men and women and men arguing with men. And Paul tells him to show progress before the people. And Paul says, you'll do that by keeping a close watch on your life and a close watch on the teaching, the gospel that you've received. And Paul says, by this, you'll save yourself and you'll save your hearers. He's talking about you'll bear responsibility well as a pastor if you learn to pay close attention to your life, close attention to the gospel. I think that's a model for what we as men need to learn to do again, how we grow in character. It's not just I have all the right theological definitions. I know what I believe about every theological question. That's certainly important, but at some point that has to get worked back into your actual life, into your heart. And to do that, you have to become a student of your own nature, your instincts and your desires. It's those two works that allow us to make progress and actually grow in character, grow in Christ-likeness. So before we go through these, if you would take us through each one of them and um, love to hear a little about the biblical character that that's attached to that. So let's say that there, there's a mom sitting in the room and the mom has, <clears throat> let's say, an 11-year-old son. Is the mom to look at these five instincts and to say, these are five areas in my son's life that I want to pay attention to to make sure that I steward those instincts well? Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, I like to think, um, you know, you mentioned Moody published the the five love languages. I think sometimes what a book can be helpful in doing is it gives us language 
to have a conversation about things we've probably recognized but never had the, the language to be able to talk about. What I hope this book does is something like that. I hope it gives men and women, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, men and men as friends, small groups maybe, it gives us the tools to be able to say, you know, I think I think this ambition in my life has actually gone unchecked for too long. Or you know what? I think this sarcasm, which can just be a funny joke, I think there's something instinctive that I'm leaning into in that sarcasm that's actually unhealthy. And then by giving you a biblical character to recognize that, I think what you're doing is you're you're equipping each other and you're equipping men or sons with the skills to recognize what's going on inside of me that's motivating me. And how does what I have in faith teach me to mature that into something better? I actually write sort of to give up a little bit. I write at the end of the book. Maybe you're like, who cares what Shakespeare says? I don't think these five instincts are right. I've got something else. None of these fit me. It could be. I'm not saying that these five instincts are hard, you know, hard coded in scripture. What I am saying is, I think Paul's advice to Timothy, watch your life closely and the doctrine closely, is a model for what we need to learn to do as men if we're going to grow into a better manhood. So maybe it's not these five instincts, but you should still learn this process of how do I pay closer attention to my own life and motives, my instincts, and how do I check those with something that I have in Christ towards a better maturity? Okay. All right. Does that make sense? Before we go any further with this, anybody have a question, a clarifying question? I'm not understanding, or um, I, I didn't get this particular part. Does that make sense? Kathy, c- come, come here to a microphone. It's awkward. It's okay. Yeah, please do. So, I love, love questions. Kathy, I question. I, you don't have a question, but you do. <laughs> Is that I'll take comments. That's fine, too. So, Kathy, what have you heard? What have you heard from Chase so far? What, what are you picking up? You don't want to do this? You don't want to play this game? You can do it. All right. What do you pick? The mic's. Is the mic on? Oh, it's dead. What in the world? What are you? What are you picking up so far? No, I'm picking up that men aren't bad. Men aren't bad. Yes, that's Kathy's. Kathy's one of the sharpest people you ever meet. So, and what else? But that, like women, also there are sometimes things in our lives that maybe get out of control. Okay. Like, I've heard you term shadow sides. Yeah. Before. So each of the, she's saying that each of these things could have a shadow to them. You know, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a Jungian, you know, model there to right. say. And that there is biblical precedence for this, that there are people in the Bible that God has chosen to put in there to be examples to us. Okay good and for bad. Biblical characters representing each of these yep. instincts. Yeah. And so they function as symbols almost. You know, yeah. So I, write, I actually write about this early in the book that we often frame the biblical characters as heroes. And I think this is a symptom of what we do more broadly in culture too, that we think we create men by setting up an ideal and telling them, go be like that. And so we read the Bible that way too, like be a man like David, be a man like Jonathan, you know, be a man like the apostle Paul. I think most men understand the ideal. We know who, if we could as men, we would like to become better fathers, better husbands. What we struggle with is I know that's not who I am, and I seem to trip up and and fail at living up to that ideal. What I think the biblical characters are more than heroes is I think they're companions. And I write in the book that they're not there to inspire you. They're there to expose you. 
They're there to help you understand your own tendencies and your own sins. You read their stories and you don't say, oh, I could be like that. You say, I am like that. that. That is who I am. And because of it, that perspective you gain on your own actions, your own motives, your shadows, helps you then begin to embrace more of what Christ has offered you and grow in Christ's likeness. So yeah, I think that's a really good point to say that these biblical characters are there partly to help us recognize what it looks like to grow, not just to say, go and do likewise. That's right. And and they're there to expose you, not to not to inspire you. And I love that language. The the Jews have thought of um, the, the patriarchs, as it were. They've thought of them as shepherds of Israel. And the shepherd isn't the one who's inspiring the sheep. The shepherd is the one who is guiding the sheep. The shepherd is the one who is walking with the sheep. And so in, in the ancient tradition, um, the, the Jews would say that they're, they're, um, the Judaism has no plastic saints, that, that they're not these figures that you just sit before you that are perfect. They're not, you know, Ken and Barbie, as it were. They're, they're, they are flawed. They have deep contours in their character that uh, both in, inspire and also should make you, you know, uh, be, uh, reject uh, some of their lives. So they inv- their stories are there and are, are told continually because their stories invite us to see our own stories uh, in fresh light, and how God worked in them, maybe how God wants to work in us. So, um, I, I, you guide me in this conversation, but I, I would love to hear you take us through each of these instincts and and uh, help us to see ourselves in them. I do have one more question, though, before we begin. Are yeah, go these ahead. Only masculine instincts, or ah. are these also feminine instincts? Because I know some ambitious people who are not all men, both for good and for ill. Yeah, certainly these are not only masculine okay. instincts. All right. I'm drawing them from from Shakespeare. And I think my experience has been talking about them. Men tend to shake their head and be, say, yep, that sounds like me. And a lot of women tend to shake their head and say, yep, that sounds like my husband. Uh, so I do think there's, there's significant overlap here. I, I tend to think that what matters is that we talk about these things more so than we strictly define them and say, that's only a male conversation. That's only a female conversation. Part of the reason I'm interested in talking about these things to men is just because men seem to be struggling right now. All the statistics say it. They're showing up to church less than than women. They're practicing their faith personally less than women. They're dropping out of education, the workforce, the fatherlessness epidemic that our country's facing. So part of what has me motivated to just specifically have this conversation with men is is they're, they're, they're failing in so many ways and, and need help. We need to have this conversation. But yeah, read the book as a as a woman, and I think you're going to find plenty in there that's helpful for you. Uh, but a little bit of why I've aimed it specifically yeah. at men. Yeah, the, it you know the idea that that all men are oppressive and powerful and evil is fake news. Number one, but more men um, victims of violent crime than anybody else. More men. So you you go down the line, and it's it's not like the men are sitting in ivory towers somewhere just pulling all of men are hurting right now. Yeah, they and, commit suicide at a higher rate. They're addicted to opioids at a higher rate. They're both the perpetrators, but as you say, also the victims of violent crime at a higher rate. I mean, almost every way that you could mark a red flag in society, men are are, are leading the way uh, yeah. on all of those negative yeah. statistics. So there's some, certainly something wrong yeah. with the way that we're approaching uh, yeah. how to help men yeah. become better. And there is something to be said for the for the ways that men have misbehaved over time. 
right? But there's also something to be said that the way that you correct that is not to use the same power over men that men used over you, right? So the, if, if you use the same tactic against your enemy that your enemy used against you, then it's just tit-for-tat violence that the cross has no bearing in that. So we need a better way forward beyond the, the power, the gender dynamics that we've set up. So now the conversation is somewhat shifted in some ways to say, you know, men are the problem. No, some men are the problem. Uh, and some women are the problem, right? So this isn't just a, a one-way type uh, of a conversation. So take us in, if you would. Um, you want to start? You want to start? Sure. With, we uh, go with the first one. With Kane. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just uh, I'll give you a little summary, and then you you know if you want to delve deeper, we can, or we can go to the next one. But so the the first instinct is uh, sarcasm, and I use Shakespeare's image, the reluctant schoolboy dragging himself to school. And I use the story of Cain. So if you're familiar with the story or if you've ever preached on the story, uh, the number one question you have to deal with is why does God reject Cain's sacrifice mm. and accept his brother Abel's? And the challenging part of that question is the Bible doesn't specifically tell us. Mm. You can infer some things and read between the lines. What struck me reading that story again was God actually comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain after he's rejected his sacrifice. And he says to Cain, why is your face downcast? Why are you frustrated? Don't you realize sin is crouching at your door? It's the first time the word sin is used in the Bible. Its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Well, it struck me Cain has the perfect opportunity to ask the question that has plagued every commentator and preacher who's ever had to deal with the passage. All he has to do is say to God, who's initiated a conversation, why? Why did you reject my sacrifice? And not only does he learn that information, but he then knows better how to worship God. Mm. It's really a remarkable gift in some ways that he has this. But what does he do? He does not respond. He lures his brother Abel out into a field. He murders his brother. And when God comes back a second time and says, where is your brother Abel? He says, am I my brother's keeper? You mm. hear the sarcasm. We as a reader recognize pretty quickly that that's not just a joke. Certainly there's a kind of sarcasm that's just being funny and there's nothing wrong with it. But sarcasm can also become a kind of tool for covering up our contempt. And certainly that's the way Cain is using it. He's refusing the divine lesson. He's holding on to his immaturity and feeling like anyone who would point something out in his life is somehow misjudging him, is is setting themselves up as opposition to him. And his his uh, his instinct out of sarcasm is to react, to respond, to try to defend himself. It, there isn't a, a group of men, this kind of sarcasm that has a hard time taking anything seriously, that uses humor as a defense mechanism for not having to take things seriously, that feels mm -hmm. like if they're ever questioned in any way or criticized in any way, that it's somehow unjust and unfair and an attack on them. And the danger is, you know, that story ends with, it says Cain wandered in the land of Nod. It's Hebrew, Nod, for wandering, the place of wandering. He ends up a kind of lost child, unable to mature, adrift, no, no aim or direction in life. And our refusal to mature, our refusal to take those divine lessons and recognize them as a gift from God, even though they're painful, that God is like a father who disciplines us for our good, our inability to receive that discipline always leads us to a place like Cain of wandering drift and perpetual immaturity. Mm. So the story of Cain and Abel has fascinated me for uh, a long time. I've never thought of Cain as, as being like sarcastic was never the word that I used, um, but it's, it's exactly the right word. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? 
Yeah, there's actually a theory that sarcasm is an adolescent milestone in which if you know if you have young children when they're two yeah, or so yeah. uh, depending on their advancedness when they're two or so they'll just straight up lie to you you know did you eat the right. cookie no while well, they've got chocolate on their face but they hit an age where all of a sudden they start getting a little more clever and yeah. they're like well you know what cookies you know you know right. it's they know exactly what you're asking but they're right. obscuring it and there's something like that going on in Genesis mm-hmm. when Adam and Eve sin in the simplicity of that first sin they hide themselves physically in a bush mm-hmm. but when Cain sins he hides it in this kind of clever disguise of sarcasm. Am I my brother's keeper? So there's certainly something going on here where he imagines himself clever when we as readers recognize what it is pretty clearly. It's just contempt for the authority of God. I I heard um, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson um, at Sanger Theater a few weeks ago. Uh, he, He said that the Cain and Abel story uh, is fascinating for many reasons, but one of the things that he he said in response to the question, which was, um, "What is what is betrayal?" And he said, "Well, the highest form of betrayal is to betrayal is the betrayal of yourself." Um, and then he said, "Let's take the Cain and Abel story." And a, to make a long, brilliant articulation very concise, he said, "Cain um, murdered his ideal." So he said that his brother Abel in his eyes had become the ideal. And, and rather than being confronted with the ideal and realizing that you don't measure up to the ideal, his response to the ideal was to, was to betray the highest ideal he could imagine by murdering it. And so now he has no standard in his life against which to gauge himself. So rather than say, I can get better, he just responds by saying, I'm not going to strive for anything. And if that isn't a tendency of sarcasm, rather than to confront the thing in truth, you shrink back from the thing and using that little cutting edge, rather than say the thing that needs to be said, you say the sarcastic thing. Rather than deal with yeah, the you thing mock that needs the to truth. be said, you mock the truth. And, and, and he went one layer further to actually murder the truth. He couldn't handle the truth. Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Um, that's fascinating. And, and how can sarcasm be... I see the 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 evil tendency. I see the shadow. How could that be a positive instinct? Yeah, well, um, there's certainly nothing sinful about sarcasm. I mean, if somebody says something witty and clever and sarcastic and we we laugh, there's we haven't sinned by laughing or by saying it. And I actually think there's places the Old Testament prophets are often very sarcastic to make a stark point. Okay. I think you could see even in Jesus at times, there's a kind of sarcasm. In, in my mind, it's never this kind of contemptuous sarcasm, yeah. but a kind of clever way of putting something that forces people to, to, to recognize the irony of it is certainly yeah. there. Okay. But the kind of sarcasm that that Cain is deploying here is really not a joke, but a means of deception. It's okay. a it's a way of putting off God and covering up his contempt for God, mm. of saying something without really mm. saying something. Mm. And we recognize it as just a mark of immaturity. And that's yeah. what I think it when it's an instinct, it tends to be a defense mechanism yeah. that protects our immaturity. I think humor can play the same role. It can be really funny. It can be really good. It can also be a cover for you saying the thing that you really feel like you need to say. I, as a man, I encounter many men and do this myself. Rather than saying the thing that needs to be said, I'll make some pithy remark, some sarcastic 
remark. Yeah. Or if I feel uncomfortable in a situation, I tend to turn it into a joke so that I don't have to deal with the reality of the situation. I mean, that's certainly something I've experienced and and many men do as well. Yeah. Does this resonate? The sarcasm element? I'm seeing some nodding heads. Okay. Do, is there more? I know we, I know you wrote a book for a reason, you know, but is there more to unpack, uh, on this or do you want to move on to the second one? Yeah, we can keep going. So I'll be happy to. I will say for each of these, um, you can read more in the book. I pair an intentional practice of Christian faith with them to help check it. And so for sarcasm, the one I pair with it is an intentional practice of humility, mm-hmm. which I define as self-suspicion, that a humble person is able in that moment when they feel the need to defend themselves or to react, to tear down the ideal, to use your language, that there's a pause that's long enough to entertain the idea that I might be wrong. I'm suspicious of my first reaction because maybe God is doing something or challenging me in some way that I need. So for each of the instincts as we work through them, know that there's always a kind of tool I try to work in for. If this feels like something that's true of you, then maybe try this and see if it helps you remember, check that instinct, which is what we've been talking about. So so rather Um, than when God says, where's your brother, rather than say, you know, am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) Am I his babysitter? (laughs) And you know, that's a really portrait. But you, you might pause and say, what am I running from? What am I yeah, hiding? Or, or ideally, the moment he finds himself angry that he's, his sacrifice has been yes. rejected, yes. Why? could he have enough self-suspicion to say, maybe I did something wrong. Oh maybe there's something going on in my life that made that sacrifice yeah. invalid. And then when God comes yeah. down and says, why is your face downcast? Okay. Don't you know sin's crouching at the door? Okay. He has the maturity to say, okay. tell me more about it. Teach me. Yeah. Help me Help me recognize that in myself. And that's the thing he just can't do. So a slowing, a creating of space between stimulus and response, between yep. the feeling of being threatened or challenged or not measuring up or feeling out of your league, or your ego being whatever, create space between this and how you respond to ask yourself, how can I learn? What's the truth I can say? How can I grow to slow that down? Would that be a healthy thing? Become suspicious. Like, what what can I learn here? How can I grow here? That's right. Is that this fair? is, we could spend a whole bunch of time on just this one, but that that is the definition of meekness. Um, I actually write at one point that I think meekness is the missing masculine virtue, which sounds very strange to people because it doesn't feel like a masculine one. But meekness, correctly defined, is a kind of inner strength that can absorb a blow without the need to offer one back. So a meek person, Moses at one point is called meek. Why? Because he's being criticized and attacked. That's right. And he doesn't respond out of criticizing and attack back. That's right. He has enough inner strength to be able to absorb that and to control his response. Yes. Um, the ancient writers used to describe war horses mm-hmm. as meek. Yep. They were meek because they still maintained all of their wildness and power and strength. Yep. But they had been disciplined to the point that they could be ridden into battle and controlled by knees in the side or a tug of reins, that that's an image of meekness. And so, yeah, what we're describing here is what men need is meekness, inner strength that allows them the ability to not react or respond, but instead entertain the idea that God might be teaching me something that helps Mm. me grow and become Mm. a better man. So the meek person doesn't feel the need to assert himself as power over but if you take that definition of meekness, and I've heard, uh, I've heard another say that meekness is power under control. So in, in the Hellenistic world of w- in which Jesus was, was a part, as you know, um, Alexander the Great had a, had a lot of influence over virtues and vices and what was esteemable and not esteemable. And Alexander the Great was esteemed as being a meek king. 
well, how could the most powerful man in the world be esteemed as being meek? He can be esteemed as being meek if, he sh- if, if whenever he's provoked, he restrains the amount of force that he uses to respond. So when people say that Jesus is meek, it doesn't mean he's mild. It doesn't mean he's weak. It means, as you're, as you're getting at, that it is a virtue to be able to hold my strength within me as a man, to be able to hold my strength within me, to look at the situation, and to measure my response accordingly while in humility becoming suspicious of myself that I might actually have something to learn, that everyone might be my teacher, that I could be wrong rather than having to be the big bad man in the situation that rolls in and sets things straight. Yeah, that's actually, in my mind, a better kind of strength. The kind of person like Cain who just has to respond, who has to get even, actually appears weak in the story. Mm. The person who can control themselves long enough to entertain what's actually happening is a greater strength. In the same way that a great fighter, a great boxer, is not just measured by his ability to throw a punch, but also his strength is measured by his ability to absorb a punch as well. We could look at a guy, take it round after round, yeah. and we don't say, wow, how weak of him. We say, man, that guy is is strong because he's able to take a blow as well. That's mm-hmm. what we need as men is an ability to sort of absorb those things without this impulse to just immediately respond. And instead, the kind of character that allows ourselves to learn in all situations. That's, that's a better way to be a man. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I wish you only had one masculine instinct because I feel like we could talk about these all night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but let's keep going. The second. Sure. So the second one is adventure. Shakespeare's image is the, the, uh, the woeful lover. He's not just describing romantic uh, male-female relationships, although that's a part of it. It's this romantic view of life, quests and honor and, and adventure and danger and risk. Uh, it's not hard to see why I pair Samson's story with this character. Uh, there is a cultural narrative. It's in all of the movies that your kids are watching. I think of movies like Moana, uh, this narrative where you have to leave behind tradition and family and place, and you have to set out on some sort of an epic quest to discover who you truly are, your true identity. And you have to shed all of the expectations of others to be able to embrace that true identity. Samson is born a Nazarite. He can't cut his hair, can't touch corpses, can't drink wine. He doesn't take that vow. His, an angel actually gives it to his mother, so he's born into this strange custom. He's also an Israelite at a time where they didn't have an army, they didn't have a centralized government, they didn't have a great economy. They were constantly being raided by their neighbors. They would grow a crop, and as soon as it was ready, the Philistines would rush in and take it from them. So it's not surprising that the young man, Samson, finds himself looking down on the great metropolitan cities. The Philistines are known for their technology of metal and their cities, their wealth, that he would look down on these cities and find something about them appealing compared to the backwoods place that he's from and the strange custom that his family forced him into practicing from birth. His story is really an adventure story that plays out over and over. He goes down into some dangerous situation. The spirit strengthens him to deliver himself. And then the thing that repeats is the way he trivializes the way God rescues him. So at one point, he tears apart a lion that rushes upon him. It's the first time his strength comes over him. And passing back by, he sees this ruin of this lion with honeybees inside of it. It's really a kind of symbol for who God is intending him to be, that out of the ruin of the Philistines, this congregation of Israel will take this land flowing with milk and honey. But what does Samson do with it? He turns it into a pun that he gambles over at a drunken party with the Philistines. That little pattern plays out over and over. And what you realize in Samson's story is that this constant pursuit of adventure and romance 
doesn't lead to identity. It doesn't lead to enlightenment. It doesn't lead to self-actualization. But instead, Samson more and more and more walks away from his commitments and he becomes more and more dull and less and less discerning of what God is doing and less and less himself until he becomes a kind of anti-hero who just life sort of unravels everything betrays him. Delilah, but also his own desires, his own hungers, his own appetites, all the adventures that he's been pursuing. So I use it as a way of saying to men, there's certainly nothing wrong with an adventure. I love to go sailing. I would like to do some adventurous sailing. Who knows? Maybe someday. But if that desperation for adventure is costing you contentment, if it's costing you your commitment to a spouse or to children or to a place or to a career, then that's probably a good thing that you've overindulged. And it's actually weakening the very things that you think it is going to deliver for you. Mm. It's having a conversation. It's, it's been a while now. Um, with somebody who was dissatisfied in, in, their, in their career. They left one, it really was a career. It wasn't just a job. Left a career for a job, left that job for another job, left that job for another job. And the sense that I had was they're looking for the job to do something for their identity, right? And at the end of it, they said, what do you, what do you think I should do? I said, I think you should plant a garden and coach your son's little league. But what about my job? I don't care about your job. I think you should plant a garden and coach your son's little league. That yearning in, in men to do something great, to build something great, to be someone great. I mean, from the time we're born, how many of our parents instilled in us, you're going to do great things, you're going to be a world changer. I think that's a bunch of crap. You're probably not. You're probably not. You're probably not going to be a world changer. I've never told any of my kids they're going to be world changers. They might just be humans that work in an office and change the office. Is there something in, in men in particular that you think that, we're, that we may have been sold a bill of goods on what it means to live a meaningful life? There has been a trend in Christian men's conversations about our need for adventure. And there's certainly a kind of man who feels like my life has no overarching narrative, mm -hmm. it has no meaning, that I think it is important to say to you, no, 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 God does have something adventurous for you to do with your life. Your life does have a narrative to it that leads to something that God is intending to do. I think culture has sort of doubled that conversation, uh, and a lot of men have taken it to mean, I have to constantly be pursuing adventure to know who I am. Mm. And I think there's a real danger in that. This is an area that requires discernment. This is why it's not simple enough to say adventure is good, adventure is bad. Yeah. There are certainly times God calls that are real adventures. The point I try to make in the book, there's a, there's a place in Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo are nearing Mount Mordor to destroy the ring. I apologize for getting kind of nerdy here. Hopefully this resonates with somebody. Um, but there's a point where Sam begins to lose hope. And he says, I didn't think it would be like this, that it would be this hard and this exhausting and this endless. He's in the middle of the story and it just doesn't feel like the adventure he mm. thought. And Sam, his friend says to him, I think all adventures are like that. And if the people had given up when it was hard, we wouldn't have ever known how they had ended or that they were an adventure at all. And Sam says to him, I wonder what kind of story we've fallen into. Hmm. I think that's the thing we should be doing as men. God has given us things to commit to. 
that at times don't feel adventurous, mm. that times feel hard and boring and dull. But the last place that you can determine the meaning of a story is when you're in the middle of it. Oftentimes that story only becomes the adventure, the reward, the fulfillment at the very, very end of the story, right? Uh, the worst place to draw the conclusion about the value of my life is when you're in the middle of the story. And that's what a lot of us end up doing. We get into jobs, we get into car payments and mortgage payments, and we get into a career and we get the complexity of family life. And we start saying, man, this isn't living up to my expectations of adventure. But maybe it's because we haven't cultivated the kind of discernment that helps us see that God is doing something adventurous in this life. We're just in the middle of that story. We're just in that part that requires commitment to see it through till the end. So, so you, yeah, it's a complicated question to say it's never yes or no to adventure. It really is right. a question of, am I pursuing something I think is going to be meaningful or am I cultivating the discernment to recognize the story that God is working in the midst of my life? Does anybody have a question about this before I ask a question? Anybody have a thought or a comment or a question? I've got like 40 questions. Yes, Laura, yeah. Mm. Of adventure, yeah. Okay. So, so when it comes to adventure, maybe it's your idea of what adventure is and the standard of and how you define adventure. As with Cain, you you said looking at you know comparison, envy of what his brother did. That that the role that comparison and envy plays whenever we're looking at our own lives and going, you know, and that leads us to, um, you know, getting, <laughs> you know, the, the midlife crisis comes with a sports car and an affair. I mean, that's just how it goes, right? That's standard, isn't it? I write no, my not, description. Sorry, I, I couldn't hear the question. <laughs> I couldn't hear the question, but I described Samson at one point in the book as, please excuse me, I'm, it's, this is my sarcasm for Samson, but I describe him as with a man bun and a CrossFit t-shirt in some remote Redstone Canyons documenting it all on Instagram, <laughs> right? Because this is what we imagine. It's not really an adventure if you don't come back with like Instagram photos for it. So this idea of comparison of that life seems or appears more adventurous than my life, I think that's a really, a really wise comment to make. And certainly the kind of thing Samson seems to be doing as well, where the Philistines that looks so much more adventurous mm. than this Israelite thing that I'm a part of. And that's kind of what seems to keep um, the phrase is uh, when it, his story begins, he saw a girl in Timnah and she was right in his eyes, which is this theme in the book of Judges. They did what was right in their own yeah. eyes, that they're constantly looking at something else yeah. and then sort of mimetically pursuing that thing because it it seems more valuable than what they have. So, yeah, I didn't hear the whole question, but it you sounds like it. the comparison yeah. idea is why. It sounds like the opening line of a good country song. Like, I saw a girl in Timna and she was right in my eyes. I don't know. There's, yeah. Did you, did you, well, can, later I want to talk about Eric Auerbach, okay? Um, <laughs> but not right now because that would put people to sleep. All right, so number three, um, ambition. Who do we have there? I use the story of Moses to talk about ambition. And let me sort of just tear through the, the, you know, the periods of Moses's life quickly. Moses grows up the first 40 years in the Egyptian court. He's trained and educated at the highest possible levels. One day he goes out and sees an Egyptian beating two Hebrews. Uh, and he finds himself in that moment inspired and rises up and strikes down the Egyptian. 
The book of Acts says that he did it because he believed that those Hebrews would rally behind him, that he would lead them, he would lead them to freedom. It's this moment of great ambition that leads to action. He has a clear vision of what he imagines is going to happen. Well, it fails. The two Hebrews he saved end up mocking him, saying, who made you prince over us? And so he flees into the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of that 40 years, God shows up in a burning bush and says, I want you to go lead the Hebrew people to freedom. The very thing that he imagined he was kicking off when he had that ambition. And you would expect Moses to say, finally, I've been waiting 40 years for this opportunity. But instead, Moses says, uh, I'm not good with speech. And can't you send somebody to help me? And how will the people know you're actually the one that sent me? And then he finally says, can you just get someone else to do it? How is this the same Moses? How can Moses in one minute strike down an enemy to liberate a people and the next he can't even bring himself to entertain doing it at God's commission. I think that's the real lived experience of ambition. Ambition is we have a vision for something meaningful that we're supposed to achieve with our life. And there is nothing like ambition that one day makes us feel empowered and decisive and capable. And then maybe by failure or discouragement, the very next day, incapable and disillusioned and overwhelmed and done with the whole thing. Mm. It's easy to think one of those is ambition and the other isn't. But the reason I think both of them are this instinct of, of ambition is in both situations, you are measuring yourself and everything around you against the fulfillment of that vision. So whenever you're close to achieving that vision, you feel good. When you're failing to achieve that ambition, you feel frustrated and you beat yourself up over it. Everything in life becomes measured against your progress for that vision. I think that's a good way of thinking about what ambition is and how it can become unchecked and instinct um, that can drive us to really destructive places. The last piece of Moses' story is God sends him out to speak to the rock to provide water for the people yet again who are complaining. He goes out and strikes the rock with his staff. He disobeys God. For that, he will not be allowed to enter the promised land, which we think seems harsh. But the rest of that story goes, Moses went out and gathered the people and said, you rebels, that wasn't God's words, he's ad-libbing this one, you rebels, must we provide water from this rock for you? And that is the tendency of ambition. We begin to judge the people around us by how much they're in or not in, how much they help us or don't help us. We begin to manipulate and judge them. We begin to manipulate and judge God. We mistake what we feel for God and we outpace what God is doing, imagining that he has to be helping us towards our aim. And in the end, we end up judging ourselves. We measure our own identity by either success or failure. Everything gets measured against this mm. great ambition. Is there a sense with Moses that, you know, it comes to mind the first time striking the rock worked, right? Didn't it earlier, mm -hmm. earlier in the narrative? Yes, yep, yep. God yeah. gave him those instructions him before. Instru mm -hmm. Yeah, strike the rock and it works. And so when it comes time to do it again, he relies on on his own, his own. And there's something to me when I find myself ambitious in an unhealthy way, it's because I've elevated my own measure, my own standard, my own methods of going about achieving a result that I view to be esteemable or praiseworthy rather than letting the Lord lead me into what he's going to lead me into. And when, especially when his methods don't align with my methods, trusting that he will do what needs to be done. It isn't that I don't have a role to play. 
It's just that sometimes the role that I play is to rest. Like sometimes yeah. healthy ambition actually looks like taking a nap, you know, like, yeah. yeah. Well, you've actually nailed this because the, the, the one practice that I pair with this is, is Sabbath, which sounds okay. very Christian, but I think it's a mistake. We sometimes think of Sabbath as I take one day off a week so that I can be more productive on the other six. Yeah. We think of Sabbath as a kind of life hack to get more energy and get more done. Yeah. But really what it is, is what you just said. Moses is asked to set down the ambition of his life. He will not enter the promised land. He has yeah. to set that work down. Um, how difficult that must have been after all these years. But he doesn't lose God. He still has God. He's just asked Beautiful. to set down the fulfillment of that work. And I think the way we should think about Sabbath is I'm going to accept right now that I will only ever achieve six sevenths of what I'm capable of achieving. I mean, what a test of ambition, right? You will only achieve six sevenths of what you could imagine yourself possibly achieving because there's a day a week you're just not going to work on it. That you could, the people around you may be working, but you are going to intentionally say no and put yourself in a position of receiving from God instead yeah. of just achieving something yourself. Yeah. Because you know yourself, this is actually where I think they kind of build, you have enough self-suspicion about yourself to know that I will overwork and I will disobey and I will lose yeah. things if I don't teach myself how to set those things down and instead receive That's from beautiful. God. Yeah, yeah, Rabbi Heschel taught us that on the Sabbath, we rest as if our work is done. There's always more to be done. But, but actually, your, your work is done. You see that? Like you're, Everything that God has invited you to do is done. So on the Sabbath, you actually remind yourself that you're not running the universe, that the whole thing can keep spinning without you intervening. And if you can't rest on the Sabbath correct me if I'm wrong, it would seem that your ambition has made an idol out of your own abilities. To think that God can't run the universe without our interve intervention one day a week. <laughs> You're like, well, what happens if, okay, if the ox is in the ditch, get it out. Jesus was pretty clear. It's never a prohibition on the Sabbath to do good, to seek justice, and to, to give mercy. Never, right? Kid needs to go to the hospital, take the kid to the hospital, right? <laughs> But man, what a powerful, what a powerful invitation to check our ambition with the with the medicine of Sabbath. I love that. That's really good, Chase. So reputation, the fourth. Uh, so for reputation, I use the story of David and Saul as well. Um, Shakespeare in this stage describes the man as uh, he's the sort of professional. He's 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 in his career and having some success. And Shakespeare says he begins to cut his beard the way that's expected and begins to dress the way that's expected. And Shakespeare says he begins to put a little extra weight on, which is something I love in Shakespeare's description. This is somebody who has achieved success and is now interested in the appearance of things and preserving the reputation that comes with I that I don't success. like this instinct. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's between, I, both, I don't know which part of Shakespeare's description the resonated. I, it's the beard yeah. and the weight. Yeah, that's what it is. Well, so I use David's story. There's a fascinating thing going on in First and Second Samuel. If you go back and read, there's this symbolic place of clothing in the story. Over and over, clothing comes up. Saul tries to put his armor on David when he fights Goliath. Jonathan gives David his tunic as a sign of him being the rightful heir to the throne. Um, 
David wears a simple linen ephod when he brings the ark into Jerusalem and gets mocked by his wife for doing it. Uh, Saul reaches out and tears the hem of Samuel's garment. And Samuel says, God will tear the kingdom from you as you tore the hem of my garment. In Hebrew, there's this connection in the language between uh, clothing and disguises. So begad, the Hebrew word, can be used in both ways. We have something similar with the word cloak. You can wear a cloak, but you can also cloak something uh, to hide it, to cover it up. And there's this idea going on in the life of David that there is a tension between the way you present yourself to the world, the royal garments that you wear, Mm. and the truth, the integrity of who you actually are, that it can be a kind of disguise to cover up the truth. And at moments, David gets that right. He takes off Saul's armor and says, I will fight Goliath as who I actually am, a shepherd with a sling and God on my side. But at other times, this goes terribly wrong. He commits sin with Bathsheba, but then worsens that sin by trying to cover it up, by plotting to murder her husband, Uriah, which he does as a way of hiding his sin. And it takes the prophet Nathan coming and laying that out before him before David is finally able to to recognize and own Mm. that. Mm. So I argue for the importance of integrity, which I don't define. Um, We're sort of entering a political season. You'll start seeing yard signs with, you know, integrity as one of the values. We tend to think of integrity as I always do the right thing. I don't think that's the right definition of integrity. Integrity is comes from the word integer, a whole number. There's no fractions. There's no parts. I think the right way to think of integrity is I don't always do what's right but I'm willing to own and work into my awareness, even the things that I do wrong. And this is in, in many ways, David is such a complicated character because, you know, I find myself saying like, I wouldn't want my son to be like David in some ways, but certainly not in other ways. Uh, But what's so remarkable about David's story is in the end, it's all recorded for us. We know more about David than we do any other person from the ancient world. We have books written, we have his own Psalms written, and in his own words, and also in the the, the records, the royal records, are all of the sordid details of his life. Mm-hmm. We live in a time where politicians will spend a lot of money to cover up their sins, hire attorneys and image consultants. David could have done the same thing. He could have burned the records, he could have hidden his own sins. But in the end, he gives us a whole picture of who he is. There is a kind of confession of life that comes only through integrity. And I think it's a really important way of thinking about who we are as well, too. Am I living compartmentalized and divided? Are there things I'm tempted to lie about or cover up? Are there things that are discongruent, divisions, fractions in my life? Or can I work into my identity? Can I work into my relationship with God? Can I confess to another brother that I trust the whole reality of who Mm -hmm. I actually am? We were talking as a pastoral staff maybe a month ago about the topic of integrity, Um, and I love your definition of it, and I love the fact that you bring out integer because it's it's a whole number, a one, two, three. It's not a one and a quarter, one and an eighth, two and a five-sixteenth, whatever. I don't know. There's a wholeness to it, but it doesn't mean perfection. If if perfection were the standard or the quality, the criteria, if perfection were the criteria for integrity, then no person could have integrity. The reason Cain didn't have integrity is because Cain stopped leaning toward the ideal and instead abandoned the ideal. So it could be said that a person loses integrity not whenever they falter, but whenever they stop falling toward the, the ideal. And I think that's the difference between David and Cain, if we take those, those two people, is David had 
in his heart toward God, he had a continual leaning toward the Lord and would confess his sin and sometimes hide it. But then whenever the prophet comes and points his finger in his face, he says, thou art the man. Then he's like, oh, it's me. I'm stupid, you know, and, 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 and repents. So I want to say to the guys, I want to say to the guys that, that have something that keeps tripping you up, okay? And you feel like I've confessed that a thousand times, confess it a thousand and one, and maybe pull another brother into it, or maybe seek help with it. It's not easy, but don't let the enemy of your soul convince you that you can't keep leaning toward the ideal. Don't abandon the ideal. Don't abandon the marriage that you have in your heart. Don't abandon, don't think that you can't teach your children Bible stories because you don't live up to the standards of the biblical characters as you see them in your mind. Don't think you can't be a person of integrity because you have flaws. Does that make sense? Integrity, if, if, if integrity were measured by performance, what's, what is the percentage that you have to get it right before you are not considered to be a person of integrity anymore? Do you have to get it right 50% of the time? 51% of the time? 60% of the time? Do you have to get an A? Does it have to be 90 or above? When I was in school, it was 94. <laughs> I mean, what, what's the measure, right? But what, what we're invited to see with this life, and, and Chase has pointed this out so beautifully, you, you're, leaning, you're leaning into it. You're leaning forward. So I, I love that. I love the definition. I love what you're doing with these biblical characters. I love the way you're showing us the full scope of their stories. You don't do that. It's easy to, to, to stamp out a leadership you know, book on, on David, right? Boom, 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 boom. You can do that. It's easy to go leadership principles of Moses, you can do it. Abraham, blah, blah, blah. But you're turning these characters and you don't, you've lived with them. And I, I'm grateful for that. So we yeah, have one thanks. yet remaining. We have, we have 10 minutes. Let, let's do take, uh, go let's take a few of them on the last one and then we'll do some questions. Sounds good. So the last one is apathy. Uh, Shakespeare describes this as a man who begins to lose his voice uh, in age oftentimes, but it's a symbol of his engagement with the world. Shakespeare uses the line, which I love, the world has become too wide. Uh, There's this sense that as we age, we begin to realize things that we thought were simple or more complicated. Things that we thought we had control over, we realize we don't have control over. Mm. Relationships become increasingly complicated. The world around us feels increasingly complicated. And there's a tendency within us to withdraw from those things and retreat into the simplicity of our hobbies and our home and our recliner. I use the story of Abraham, who's a little bit surprising because Abraham is the archetype of, of faith. He's the one who follows God onto horizons. But when things go wrong for Abraham, they tend to be because complexity keeps him from engaging it. So to give it really quick, there's several examples. But when they're waiting and waiting for their son to be born, Isaac, who has not yet come, Sarah comes up with a plan to produce an heir through their servant, Hagar. Abraham should have said no, but he goes along. Maybe worse, that creates conflict between Sarah and Hagar. And Sarah comes to Abraham after Ishmael, the son, is born and says, hey, this isn't working. And Abraham literally says to her in the Bible, you deal with it. (laughs) So Mm. checks out from it. Mm. She begins to mistreat Hagar. Hagar and Ishmael flee into the wilderness. I mean, the whole thing just falls apart. And it's primarily because Abraham will not rise to the complexity of the moment. 
there's a kind of false ending that happens at the end of Abraham's story, the end of chapter 21 in Genesis, where everything seems to be fulfilled. It says he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. He settles his roots. He signs peace treaties with his neighbors. Isaac, the son he's been waiting for, is finally there. And in this story of the patriarchs, you would expect to turn the page and it's Isaac's story. Everything that Abraham had been waiting for, he had. I say in the book that I think this is actually the most dangerous moment of Abraham's life. And Abraham's had dangerous moments, wars and conflicts and been held by kings. But in this moment, he runs the risk of that faith that has always been so active and alive turning into something that is no longer active and alive. He certainly still believes in God, but he has received everything he's wanted. What does he need faith for? Mm. You turn the page into chapter 22 and the opening lines of chapter 22, this kind of false ending is, but God tested Abraham Mm. and he asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. I think that test is not about, will you pass Abraham? I mean, Abraham's passed plenty of tests. I think this test is about helping Abraham recognize his faith has to stay alive. His faith has to be engaged. There's a place in the book of Hebrews where it says he believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, even if by resurrection. I love that word, even. Abraham is forced to act into the ambiguity of that call, into the uncertainty of how God will respond. And instead of I do this, I get this result. He acts not knowing exactly when or how God will intervene, but even if it's in resurrection, Mm -hmm. by faith, he moves forward into Mm -hmm. it. And suddenly this this key feature of his life, the faith and the movement of Abraham is there again. He's no longer sitting under a tree, checked out. He's moving again and looking to God and trusting in this great moment of God's intervention. So I just want to say to men that I trust me, I get it. If, if things are complicated right now, things are difficult right now, and I know it is easier to retreat. Retreat. I know it's easier to pull back into things you can control in your hobbies, but don't be naive about what what you risk in doing that. Mm. You risk losing and devastating the very things you imagine you're protecting by retreat, and you have to guard your faith from becoming stale and mm. stagnant and apathetic. And the primary way we do that is by sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice is financial, but sometimes it's just I'm willing to sacrifice the simplicity of my life to engage in some complicated relationships to show up to church, even though maybe there's things I don't like about it, to sit with a younger man and listen to craziness that he's saying, but be present and try to give counsel. I know it would be a lot easier to withdraw from all that, but you've got to find a way to sacrifice to keep that faith alive. Goodness me. You hear that? We're not called to, we're not called to a pastel faith. It's not a Thomas Kincaid painting that we're invited into. No offense to Kirkland's. It's an adventure. You're 80 years old and you're Abraham. <laughs> or however, how old was he whenever? No, oh, he's over 100, he's 120 over 100 or something. By that point, yeah. yeah. He's and 80. I should say, there's nothing wrong with being retired. You know, I don't want to he- people to hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with a vacation. There's nothing wrong with a season. No. But like all of these things have the discernment yeah. to recognize when that's yeah. become an indulgence that's risking sure. too much. Sure, yeah. And there's nothing in what you're saying. I, we get you. We get you. Yeah, but there, there is this seduction to... Uh, <laughs> There's this, there's this American dream of one day I'm just going to put my heels up, like forever. <laughs> and, 
And the life of faith is like, actually, uh, we're going to climb another mountain here. Oh, and the thing that you put all your trust in, you're going to lay it on the altar. I've got a new adventure for you, but I'm 94. I know. (laughs) It's going to be great. It's going to be wild. That's scary. And yet that's the place where your faith is alive. You know, the idea... It is a gift. It is a gift. The the testing happens because God loves the son. Abraham... Abraham was tested, I think it was 12 times by God or something like that. Jesus was tested. The book of Hebrews says, if you're not being tested, it's because the father doesn't love you. <laughs> Any father that, or discipline, I should say, if you're not being disciplined, it's, it's a sign that your dad didn't love you. But the father disciplines those that he loves. And, and, and he also tests us to reveal both to him what's in us but to us what's in us. And that's the gift of a test. Here's where you are. Lay your son on the altar. Ah, but how? And he does it anyhow. That's, that's quite the adventure that we're invited into. And we never retire from listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So maybe you've got a question for Chase. Um, he's thought a lot about masculinity. He's thought a lot about what it means to pastor men. Um, Maybe you have a question about something that he hasn't even talked about tonight. You're like, ah, I've got, I just, I've got this situation at work. How do I deal with this? I've got this boss that's a guy and just annoys me. What, what questions do you have for Chase tonight? Comments. Usually it takes one question to get them going, then there are nine. So who wants to ask the first bad question? Anyone? Laura's got a second one. I know you, Laura. You lost yours? Philip, you got anything for us back there? You feeling good? In the back? Yeah, hey. Yeah. Yeah. He says we, you know, in our culture, we're defined by what we do. Somebody asks, they they meet you for the first time. Hey, what do you do? And he he referenced my friend that I was, you know, chatting with about, you know, not in in so many words, not being defined by what you do. Just plant your garden, sow in the life of your children. How do you? Your question on the end of that was how. How do you deal with that, or how did that happen, or uh, yeah, yeah, is that something that you're seeing and experiencing, Chase? Yeah, certainly. I mean, career is such a way of defining ourselves. It kind of changes, right? You're in college. It's like, where are you from? What's your major? Then you graduate. And it's what do you do for a living? And um, yeah, I think that's all. I mean, how, how do you change that? I don't know, but I think it's important that you have some men in your life who know you at a level far deeper than that. Mm. Um, you know, I've got men in my congregation. You know, it's funny as a pastor, I don't, I don't tend to think of the men in my congregation as as what they do. I, I've got many of fascinating jobs and some that have kind of normal average jobs. And, but I, I know them at a level where 
they're all interesting and I care about all of them as, as people. So I, w- I would hope that all of us are trying to cultivate those kinds of relationships. And sometimes that can be hard. Sometimes, you know, the people you know is the people you work with, or maybe you've got a job where people know you because it's that profession or something. But finding ways through your church, through friends to just mm-hmm. know, even at the end of the day, people are always going to associate me with a certain career or job. There's still right. a group of people. There's still some other men who really, really know me. I think that's probably just more important because of it. So having those relationships. You know, a question I've started asking people is, what do you love to do? And they look, people, you know, important people, they don't really, you know, well, I, I mean, I work and, uh, you know, I'm the vice president, whatever. But I love asking that question. Like when I meet somebody, what do you, what do you love to do? Because your career can be that cloak that you wear to hide what you are, all right? What are, yeah, another question. So are the five masculine instincts an attempt to control and is meekness a way forward toward self, you know, self-control? Um, do you think that all of them are attempts to control? I would probably describe them as, I think there are, and who knows if they're just biological in nature, if they're mm-hmm. cultural in nature. I think there are defaults we fall into. Yeah that we are normally blind to. So I would tend to think of them more as blind spots, Mm -hmm. that if you're not paying close attention to your life, there's just some ways of acting, of deciding, some behavior as if from knowledge, to use Lewis's definition, that you're just going to fall into, right? I mean, how do you you decide what you do? You don't sit down and make a a cost-benefit analysis chart for every decision you make in life, right? You just act and decide things. You react and do things. Mm -hmm. Well, why? Where where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. There's something within us. Us, a way of seeing the world, a narrative about who we are in it, an instinct is the language I use yeah. that just motivates us to, to that action. So for me, they're sure they're probably a way of control. That's probably a piece of it, if, if that's helpful to think that way. But I would describe them as there's just these blind spots in my life mm-hmm. that I will act out of without really thinking yeah. about. And the goal of the book, the goal of this whole conversation is just to say, we have to get really good at recognizing why we do what we do. Mm. We've got to get really good at searching our own hearts and understanding yeah. our tendencies and our motivations and our desires. And we've got to make sure that we're working this faith we have. We're working Christ and the power of his gospel, not just into our outward behavior, but we're working it deep into those desires yeah. and instincts and motivations. That's the path forward to becoming a person of true Christ-likeness of character. And the work that, just to put it frankly, outside of your church and maybe a few Christian friends, no one else is going to help you do that. Nobody mm-hmm. in the world is going to say, you know, mm-hmm. let's apply the things of the gospel mm-hmm. to, to your innermost being, right? Yeah. Um, there, it takes a level of intentionality. You're not going to get that on the news. You're not going to get that in, you know, social media breaking headlines. You're not going to just pick that up at the supermarket. It takes a level of intentionality in a community of people to do it with. And the companions we have in scripture, the men and women who have gone before us and wrestled through the same things and, and help, help us see it in ourselves. Chase, this has been fascinating. 
and uh, we're up against our time. And uh, I just realized I never plugged in my computer, and it tells me it's about to die. (laughs) I'm so grateful (laughs) (laughs) that you did this with us. And um, so next week, we're going to have Sarah Billups. You actually know Sarah Mm. from the, the doctoral program there. And the conversation is going to be about orphaned believers, how a generation of Christians can find their way home. I encourage you to show up. Sarah is thoughtful. She has her finger on the pulse, I think, of what's going on uh, and some of the challenges we're seeing um, in, in people that are, are really trying to navigate um, their faith in, in light of current and possibly future political climates and um, everything that's going on uh, there. What is it? How do I... How do I find my way forward in this complex world that I live as a person of Christian faith? And so uh, thankfully, it's a great church to do it in here. Um, uh, but we need language for that. We need to have this conversation. So uh, again, Chase, remarkable work. I hope everybody buys your book. Uh, Minute yeah, thank you. It's, it's a great conversation. I would encourage you, uh, if you're into podcasts, to download the Pastor Writer uh, podcast. Subscribe to that, I should say. And Chase has conversations weekly uh, with pastors and writers. And uh, it's just, if you're interested in writing at all, uh, it's a great podcast uh, to subscribe to. So I think that's it. The little bar is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> we'll talk to you later, Chase. Yeah, well, thank you guys again. It was an honor to be with you. Really appreciate it. Great questions too. So thanks. Bye-bye. hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you want to find out more about Generations United, head on over to genuchurch.com. Join us next time as we have our interview with author Sarah Billups. Until then, Genu, we love you. We're praying for you. Take care.